listen, like I always say, there's nothing to bring the roses to the cheeks like chick trouble. I mean chick trouble. Oh, wow. <laughs> Get off my back. Get off my back. What? You mean we're on the air? Holy smokes! You mean it got out on the air? I'm going to fire the entire floor here! <laughs> Hello, friends. Uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, George. <laughs> this is Uncle Fred Bobsey, and uh, I'm here to uh, dandle you on my knee and uh, whisper little sweet nothings into your shell-like ear. It's kind of nice, isn't it, Fred? Like, like uh, Charles Boyer uh, always says, Love is a ball. <laughs> Not bad, is it? It's almost as good as uh, Joey Carter or Bobby Carter or Jackie Joey or Joey Marty or all them other guys that you see on the Ed Sullivan Show all the time. <laughs> You want to hear my famous uh, imitation of Eugene Pallette? Huh? You want to hear that? No daughter of mine's going to marry a Peter. Right up. So is your old man. I don't like to take that kind of jazz. You're getting it free, you slob. Never look a gift horse in the, uh, in the, uh, uh, what is it you're not supposed to look a gift horse in? Oh, it can't be that. What do you mean? That's terrible. There's kids listening. Holy smokes. We've got to clear the slate now. We've got to wipe the whole slate clean. Mario, quick, wipe the slate clean now. Rasmataz. Okay, let's go. Here, gang. Oh, St. Louis woman, wear your diamond rings, out of the night started. I mean, everybody's so serious about, you know, something around here. And let's, uh, we've got so many commercials here tonight. Let's get, let's get them out of the way very fast. So let's, let's just hit them in the eye. Quick, there goes a the guy trying to get away. Get him, get him, You've quick. You've been building great racing cars for years. The way <laughs> Colin Chapman has, it's more than a profession. It's a passion. And Colin Chapman passionately protects oh, every precious part of the complex passion. machinery he builds. Uh, racing engines need the finest protection, and I always insist on STP in my cars because I, I know it protects their performance. He it blends with the motor passion. oil to keep it from thinning out under pressure. That's I found passion. that engines always run their best with STP. STP oil treatment is the racer's edge, and it keeps your family car running oh. racer sharp, too. Just have your service station add STP to your oil. STP keeps any car, old or new, running smoother, cooler, quieter, longer. This year at the Indianapolis 500, drivers Graham Hill and Jimmy Clark will be counting on it. 
Both our lotuses here at India are running on STP. Race engines take a terrific lot of punishment running flat out during the whole 500 miles. STP keeps the oil from thinning under heat and pressure, and it can mean the difference between winning and losing. Yeah. STP is the racer's edge. Did he say STP is the racer's edge? Wait till Somerset Mom hears that. What oh, a terrible pun. Wasn't it Somerset Mom? Indeed, Mo. You know, speaking of racing, uh, oh, it's coming up, I'll tell you. The madness, the insanity, the wildness is beginning to show. Uh, I'm sure that out in Indiana right now, there are probably 200,000 people hiding in bushes, sitting on the running boards of old Oldsmobiles, lined up into the darkness with their tents pitched, with their feet hurting, with their women complaining, with the kids crying, lined up, <laughs> lined up in the darkness, waiting for that big cannon to go off. Hey, you know, that reminds me, tomorrow night at the limelight, I think I'm going to do a Memorial Racing Day show, huh? You, you think I ought to tell the stories? You know, uh, I, I never told you this, Mario, but there was one point in my very checkered career, right after I got out of the Army, uh, I got a summer job... And I was one of those guys who was one of the one of the announcers, when I say one, because they had about 10 or 12, one of the announcers at the big oval, at the big brickyard there in Indianapolis of the big 500. Didn't you know that, Maya? Now, that adds a little to you. Know, that's something John Gambling cannot say. Huh, sir. I've been there and back. I've seen a lot of things. And... Uh, I was one of these guys, you know, there was always an anchor man. See, he's, uh, he's in the main grandstand in this clubhouse, air conditioning, of course. You know, they're bringing up the martinis and they're bringing up the mint juleps all, you know, all afternoon. All he's sitting up there and he's always saying, well, there uh, looks like a little trouble down on the north turn. Uh, Brent, come in, Charlie Brownstein on the north turn. And then Brownstein. <laughs> We're having a little technical difficulty with Charlie on the north turn. He got run over, of course. Uh, well, uh, <laughs> well, I, I was I was one of those guys. I was way out on the back stretch all the time, which was like the slums. You know that there are various key places uh, that they always want to go on. You know, there's always a lot of action on the on the south turn and on the north turn. But the, when you're on the back stretch, nothing happens but mosquitoes. And uh, a lot of sound, a lot of noise, a lot of castor oil in your ears. And about every two hours, they would come to me. They'd say, uh, and now uh, let's see how Gene Shepard is doing out there on the backstretch. I didn't even hear my cue, see. <laughs> there I'm standing. My engineer is half asleep, and these cars are thundering by about 14 feet away from me. And every time they'd go by, you'd feel, you know, you're so close to them. And most people are used to seeing things from a distance, but you're so close to them. When you're doing the, the race announcements, or at least they used to be, I don't know if they still do it now, but you're so close to them that when each one goes by, you can feel the heat. Believe it or not, and oh boy, these babies run at about 200 about 200 degrees all the time. They're right just below the boiling point. In fact, if one of these things slows up a little bit and doesn't get enough air coming in over the, uh, coming in through the scoops and uh, through the uh, through the mesh and the screens and so on, forget it. She just uh, she just boils up and that's the end of it. Out out the window your race goes. So you got to keep it moving. Say, and the heat. Oh, these things they go past you like like some kind of a meteor. And uh, as they do, they go past breathing this heat. You can just feel that flashy heat go by. 
and he's gone. So you see this guy coming down, and you and and you know there's a lot of uh, I don't know whether you know this, but there's a lot of superstitions about racing, and. Uh, one of the superstitions that was around for a long time, I don't suppose it still existed in the Annapolis ever since the British cars have been driving there, uh, but one of the, one of the uh, oldest of all the uh, traditions there, superstitions was, that it is the worst fantastic bad luck. Do you know what, what is their worst bad luck idea? In other words, you know, most people think of bad luck. You walk under a ladder or you see a black cat or something like that. But at the Oval, I'm talking about the big brickyard. They call it the brickyard. The big Oval at Indianapolis. What do you think is their number one superstition? Or it used to be. Now, I, I presume that's been changed since the British cars have come in. Now, I've given you a cue, or a clue, rather, as to... That's right. That They, they consider the absolute worst thing that can happen to a guy is to paint his car green. Yeah, th over the years, uh, you know how these superstitions grow. Over the years, these guys had begun to notice that every time a green car was entered, 15 minutes later after the race started, that car was up in the trees somewhere. <laughs> or, or out back. Oh, boy, I'll tell you, I saw one. I'll tell you, I'll, I saw one one time. Of course, we could go on and on and talk about these accidents and so on. But, you know, I, I was at the track one year. I did, I did these races three years, and I was at the track one year. It was the middle year. And uh, we were down the pits, and uh, of course the 33 cars enter. Uh, there are a lot of cars that try to get into this race, but only 33 finally qualify. And uh, they qualify by position, of course, by their trials and their time speeds and how high the speed is they qualify. And the guy that qualified with the highest average qualifying speed has the number one pole position. And they go all the way on down in rows of three. And they're kind of uh, canted rows. They, they're not straight rows, they're canted. And they go all the way down to 33. Of course, that's, that's 11 rows of three cars each. And the pace car paces them. It's usually a big symbolic pace car. They get a, they get a great big, uh, every year they have, you know, this year I think it's a Ford, isn't it something like, a what? A Camaro this year, huh? Well, you know, they, every year it's a different car. And so they, they, uh, the first lap is, is a symbolic lap. And, uh, they parade. It's like the parade of the races, uh, racehorses. At, uh, at Aqueduct before a big race. You know, they take them around the track and everybody can sit and look at them. Well, the first lap, this big cannon goes off. It goes, <coughs> and you see this guy draw out into the lane, and they always have dignitary types. You know, they have, they'll have, they uh, have, uh, or the governor, they'll have some big visiting politician or something. And they go around this track just once. See, they, they cut out, and he leads them down the track. Now, they have to have a car. Now, here's the thing about it. Maybe you don't know about this, this, uh, first lap. These are racing cars, you know. And any time one of these highly tuned racing cars, especially the rear engine types with, uh, with cooling problems, which the rear engine cars do have, uh, they cannot go under 100 miles an hour for any length of time without getting so hot they just stop going. You know, they just, uh, they just won't go. So that pace car has to go out around that track at roughly uh, anywhere between 105 down to possibly 95 miles an hour. It's about the slowest they can ever really do it. And so they get this car. It's all tuned up, you know. And when you're sitting up in the stands, it looks like they're just going around slow because you've been seeing these race cars. Usually before the race, a couple of guys will get out there for a last-minute tune-up, and they'll go whipping around there at 145, 150, 165 miles an hour. Well, all of a sudden, the cannon goes, hey, is this boring? You know, it's a <laughs> I don't know how I got started on this. The, the cannon goes off, you know, pow. 
and the band, you know, they're always a big symbol, and the balloons go up. They have 40 million balloons, which they release, and all those balloons go up all over, and the, the balloons have all kinds of prizes in them, and they're red, white, and blue, and green, and yellow balloons, and they take off millions of them, and it's just a real colorful thing. And then they used to shoot off about 45 skyrockets, you know, and the place, you never saw such crowds. I don't think there is any sporting event in all of America that gets nearly the number of people that the Indianapolis Speedway race draws. It is just fantastic. Uh, I've been to the Kentucky Derby. Uh, I've been to World Series games. I've been to uh, a big crowd at Shea. You know, I've been to soccer games. Everything is supposed to draw people, but but the, the, the crowd that comes to uh, the average race, if it's a good day, if there's a good field, uh, the average race is roughly the size of a crowd that you would see on an ordinary good weekend day at a World's Fair. I'm not kidding. Uh, they're, they're, their crowd runs between two and three hundred thousand people, and just and it's all jammed in this one oval. You know, you got to understand the oval. It's about uh, gee, I forgot now. Is it two and a quarter miles, something like that? Uh, I know the forty-five guys who call me because uh, this particular detail uh, is not particular. I think it's around two, about a two-mile oval now. I should know that. But uh, these are old. These are brick. Of course, it's a brick track, and it's uh, it was built. Uh, years and years ago, and a lot of the drivers are complaining that the track is now outmoded by the uh, fantastic speeds and the new kind of suspensions and so on that they've got on cars, that the track is outmoded, that, uh, that it's become a very dangerous scene when you're driving a car that's capable of speeds of, uh, well, now those cars, you know, you notice that a couple of the qualifiers have qualified in the 165 mile an hour average speed, friend? That's average. That means going around the turns and and uh, and uh, uh, shifting down to come into them and shifting up and so on. So that means that on the straight, when that guy lays it down on the back stretch, when he comes whipping, whistling out of that first turn, that's where the action is. You never saw anything like it. When they come out of the first turn, not go into it, come out of it, you never heard anything like that maybe about the second lap the first lap is like, uh, you, you just don't figure anybody's going to ever survive this. You know, they come around in one clump, <laughs> and every guy comes out of that first turn, and you hear, <laughs> boy, those superchargers are sucking it in, and you see the rubber burning and the smoke. You smell that oil and that high-octane gasoline, you know, that's got all kinds of glycol and all kinds of wild stuff in it. And it just just rolls out over the over the infield towards you if you're lucky enough to be close enough to that. It's just one of the great insane scenes of all sporting events. And these cars, of course, are are, are magnificent. They're beautiful cars. Uh, they they the the more uh, the more you look at those cars, the more you you have the feeling that you're not looking at an automobile at all. You're looking at a torpedo, a, a single man tor landborn torpedo. And uh, particularly the new Lotus uh, Brabham designs, these low uh, rear engine things, you know. And, and uh, another thing, a lot of these cars, the driver has to go on a diet to get in it, you know. They, they, you don't just get in the car like you're getting in your Plymouth. Uh, it's fitted to this guy, and he's, he's practically uh, prone on this automobile, if you can call it an automobile. But that minute that they come out of that first turn, the first turn, when, the, when, when everybody's rear end is digging in, is the you you have a feeling that this must be the way the end of the world is going to be like it's like total complete completely uncontrolled chaos 
and you see the front end of these cars just hopping around because the back end is digging in so much that the front starts to go up. You see, they can't quite hold them down. And they're right on the edge of being airborne. Well, in the back stretch, these guys must hit uh, on, on some of those cars, uh, particularly when a guy's making up time and when there's no wind. You know, the wind controls them a, a great deal. Uh, they may hit, oh, maybe 220, roughly. Oh, sure, to average 165, you've got to go. You've got to go with that because, you know, that 165 average, and, you know, when, when, they, when they'll wind up, the, the, uh, the finishing speed, now, I don't know what it'll be. You know, there's always giant pools on that as to what the final uh, average will be that the race driver will, the, the winning driver, the winning time, his final average. Uh, there's pools, and hundreds of thousands of dollars change hands on that. Did you know that, the, that they bet more on that than they do on the winning car? You aware of that? Speaking of losers, this is WOR, uh, New York. Uh, hit the uh, beer button, would you please, Mario, old man? Whether it's a Broadway musical or an amateur play in your town, theater is fun. And with that fun, more people than ever before are having parties at home or at their favorite restaurant with the cool, sparkling pleasure of Miller High Life beer. Be sure of a grand opening every time with Miller High Life, the champagne of bottled beer, brewed to the highest standards of excellence. Get a front row seat for real flavor. Ask for Miller High Life Beer. Miller Brewing Company, Milwaukee. Miller, Miller Beer. Hey, listen, I'll tell you a little funny thing about beer. Uh... I knew one race driver, and uh, the, of course this is officially frowned on. A lot of things are officially frowned on in, in our world. Uh, but this guy uh, used to used to race, and uh, he's just retired, I think, last year or the year before. Fine race driver. But this guy always carried with him, whenever he raced, he would carry with him a, a down stuck down next to the seat. He, I'll tell you what he really did. He carried with him a, a steel thermos flask-like, one of these uh, stainless steel types, and it contained beer. That's right. This guy used to used to slug at the beer as he goes whipping around. He says, it was the only thing to keep him from getting thirsty. There was something in the alcohol in the beer that cut the oil in his throat. Uh, do you know that one of, that's one of the problems? Are you aware that one of the problems, one of the, one of the real uh, uh, occupational diseases of professional race drivers are uh, lung and... Uh, Linux and throat problems due to continual uh, breathing in of extremely hot gases that are being not only expelled by his machine, but by all the machines around him and ahead of him. And so, yeah, remember, when a guy rides in the Indianapolis, he's going to be riding for three solid hours in temperatures in the cab. Now, this is something you might not even think much about, but in the cockpit of one of these these cars the temperature sometimes approaches 200 degrees. I'm not exaggerating. They do. You know, he's sitting, he's sitting, think of that. That thing is sitting right behind him. Now, most of these cars today are rear engine. Well, right behind him, he is leaning, literally leaning with his back 
up against a 400-horsepower <laughs> machine that is working at the total full capacity. And this just radiates heat like you couldn't believe. You could not believe. Ah, cacheso. Gracias. What is it? Tabolum vasho. Ain't him to them, Tashik. In case you're Hungarian. How are you? Uh, so uh, he he's sitting there, and he, uh, I I uh, I had an experience. I, I uh, again I I've got this STP thing came on here, and I got all involved. Let's get these commercials out of the way first. I'll go on further with this. If uh, kids, you know, particularly interested in Indianapolis races and the uh, race cars, and you're listening to a guy that went around four laps one time on the big brick oval. In uh, you really want want to know that what I what I was. Uh, I was uh, privileged to push around one of those ovals once, a Novi, famous front-wheel drive Novi, and I went four laps with this baby one time, and uh, that was a long story. We'll talk about how that worked, but uh, what a feeling. Uh, you know the Novi's. You've heard about them. Uh, here's, here's a commercial here, okay? Uh, do you know what five and a half million people are going to do this Sunday? Holy smokes, what an opening line. Please give me a, a musical salute to what five and a half million people are going to do this Sunday. <laughs> Uh, oh, that singular woman? No, that's enough. I'll play it straight. Uh, Sunday, they're going to find out how a high school principal succeeds in handling the tough problem kids. Oh, what a letdown. Sunday, they're going to Beverly Hills to see the home and family of comic Joey Bishop. Isn't that thrilling? Sunday, they're going to find out how the Salvation Army has survived for more than a century without the help of Madison Avenue and without one of the nasty criticisms usually leveled at do-gooder organizations. Sunday, they're going to see all the colorful glitter and fanfare of a high society bash at the Waldorf. Sunday, they're going to meet some of the most colorful characters in the world. How? By getting the New York Sunday News, where all the news comes to life for only 20 cents. That's what five and a half million people are going to do. I got other ideas. What I'm going to do. But, uh, you know, every man to his own dish of tea. Every man to his own cup of saffron. Let's see. Uh, we've got another one there, haven't we? Haven't we got another one? Hit the whoopee button, please. This is John K. M. McCaffrey for Shell Oil Company. On Tuesday evening, May 23rd, I came on nationwide television to kick off the new Shell Safe Driver Awards. Since the 23rd, people all across the country have taken the Shell Safe Driving Pledge and become eligible for the awards. Okay? How about the awards? There are 10,000 of them, and they run up to a possible grand award of $20,000. And how about you? If you're not one of those who are already eligible, may I strongly suggest you join them. It's not too late, and it's not at all difficult. Just sign the Shell Safe Driving Pledge, available at any Shell service station. Keep the pledge by driving safely, and you may be rewarded with up to $20,000. It's that simple, that direct. Shell cares enough to reward you for driving safely, which is fine as far as it goes. The rest is up to you. I urge you to take the pledge and keep it and see how much you stand to gain. Hey, you nervous people. I hate to ask you this, but... Uh, gee, it's just uh, it's so embarrassing to ask this, but is your TV antenna outdated? Are you an old you-know-what? Uh, it is, friend, if you're watching a black-and-white picture that's haunted by ghosts and clouded by snow, or if you, every night, are getting a light Charisse Walter Cronkite... Uh, we would like to recommend that you get a Gavin Gold Crest antenna to get all the fantastic performance that your TV set was built to deliver. 
Gavin antennas are engineered and manufactured right in this crummy, rotten New York area to solve the crummy, rotten New York local TV reception problems. Black or white or color, UHF, VHF, PDQ, whoopee, the whole scene. There is a Gavin antenna to solve your TV problem. It won't solve the problem of getting better shows, but it'll get them clearer. You can get madder at them. Call Gavin Instruments in New Jersey, 356-3500. Gavin. And now, back to real life. Uh, Gee, are we loaded tonight? Let's see, we've done STP, Miller, Gavin, New York Sun. Oh, here's one. uh, Let's see. It is a turning point for the upper-class commercial movie. An adult bedtime story. That's how Boys Life Magazine... No, how Life Magazine and Time Magazine described Two for the Road. Now at the Plaza Theater, Judy Christ. Does she pronounce her name Christ? There's another way to pronounce that word. Oh, I see. Judy Christ adds her praise. A film triumph. Bright, brittle, sophisticated. Cosmomoplin Magazine calls Two for the Road. Very beautifully. Gee, I never heard of that magazine. Cosmomoplin. Oh, Cosmopolitan. I'm sorry. This is a misprint here. Don't miss Stanley Donan's Two for the Road from 20th Century Fox. Now in an exclusive East Side engagement at the Plaza Theater, Madison Avenue at 58th Street. And remember, friends, it's dirty. Anytime they say adult movie, you know that's what that means. That's translated. Oh, oh, you want to get back to the racing cars? Oh, speaking of racing cars, quick, quick, quick. Controlled excitement. That's what one critic said. Dynamic tension rampant. That's what another critic said. You gotta see this to believe it, is what a third critic said. Wow, we, how do they get away with that? That's what a fourth critic said. Yes, friends, they were talking about the Gene Shepherd show at the limelight. All them other things. Oh, St. Louis woman. And uh, if you have missed this fantastic epic, I would only recommend that you get down to the limelight as soon as you can, man. And tomorrow night, starting at 10.30, this fantastic epic is once again on the air. See whether or not you agree with the critic. What was that? This cheap microphone that John Gambling's got. He's got this bass attachment on here. It makes him, you know, hello, 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 one, two, three, four. That's tomorrow night from 10.30 until midnight on this, the whoopee spot on your dial. Oh, one, one more note, too, friends. Uh, uh, if you would like to, rec- you know, get in there and uh, get yourself a seat uh, early, I would suggest that you give them a call right now at the Limelight. 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 I repeat, call them at the Limelight down in the village. Make a reservation and be on hand. And I'm going to... Do a show like Just Don't Stop. Uh, speaking of, uh, get, i got to get back to those racing cars. I'll tell you, they're, uh, uh, the heat in these things, to begin with, is uh, unimaginable. I'll just tell you. And these guys have feet that are cooked. I mean, literally cooked after every major race. And uh, they have to wear all kinds of special asbestos and stuff under their the soles of their shoes and so on. You never think of these things when you're... Uh, when you're watching, and, and another difficult problem that, that a race driver has in a major race of this type, 
with this type of car is visibility. Because these cars throw up continually a thin film of oil. Oil is, is constantly being exuded from these cars. If you think your car burns oil, you want to, oh, wow. Uh, and, and so there's a, there's a continual film of oil. Not only oil, but there is a film of gaseous rubber. Now, the, the heat of the road, the heat of the bricks, uh, the speed that these cars are going at, plus the oil on the track, all combines to work on the tires. And, and these tires are, are, are sending up a thin film of burning, what well, you'd call it burning rubber. It isn't really burning rubber. It's more or less pulverized, ground-up, gaseous rubber. It's like if you can take rubber that's made into a steam. And so this stuff forms a film over the whole car. Now, before the car is raced in the morning, now I'll give you some other little uh, inside bits on this. Before the car is raced, uh, this is when they're preparing a car to run on the brick oval. And, and let's say it's all mechanically prepared now. They've got the car uh, all ready to go. She's uh, beautifully tuned. Uh, everything's balanced, and they've checked the they've checked this and they've checked that, and the the tires and the wheels are all balanced. Everything's fine. Then they begin to work on the finish of the car. These cars have about fifteen coats of very fine lacquer on them, and they are buffed and buffed and buffed until this thing is. It looks like a piece of fine lacquer china. Now, why is this? Because they're egotistical? No. It's because, one, it reduces drag. Uh, the, the, the smoother that car is, the more streamlined it is at speeds upwards of 200 miles an hour. That makes a difference, as you know with your airplane, Mario. But more than that, the, the harder the finish and the smoother it is, the less stuff will stick to it. And so this, uh, this uh, rubber is flying back at him. This oil is flying back at him. This smoke and this steam and this pulverized brick, by the way, coming back at him. If this car is smooth enough, it's like glass. It's very difficult to stick onto it. And so the morning before the race, uh, these guys go over these cars with uh, literally with a fine-tooth comb. I mean, they, they, they polish this thing until you can hardly look at it in the sun. It's a magnificent finish all the way down. And then they remove, uh, they're always trying to take that last ounce off the car. Not because it makes it go faster, it's because it makes it safer. That every additional pound on an automobile gives you like 86 million more pounds of centrifugal force when that baby begins to spin. You know, most people think the heavier a car, the, the, the safer it is. No, I'm sorry, not so that the minute you start sliding or spinning, the weight that you've got becomes a terrible, terrible uh, drawback. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's centrifugal force. I could tell you the uh, formula, but when one of these cars is going 175 miles an hour and she begins to slide sideways at the, at the, uh, and centrifugal force takes over, uh, you can figure the fantastic power that's pushing that car sideways and each pound, of course, is multiplied by uh, x teen over 2 times the square root of this numbers of times. And so these guys are removing everything. And so when the driver is out there driving, he has very, very small amount of clothing even, even, even the extra pound of clothing, you see. And he has a very, very small, usually they just wear uh, maybe a very, just underwear perhaps, under that very thin uh, silk or nylon coverall, which is flash-proof, by the way, that coverall is uh, supposedly fireproof. It provides a kind of shield against fire, flash explosions and one thing or another. 
Now, the uh, the steering wheels that they use, you're probably curious about that, but they you've no doubt seen pictures of these wheels. But uh, the wheel really is, uh, it, it doesn't work much like the car wheel that you're used to using. Uh, this wheel is, is so direct, uh, the connection between you and the front wheels are so direct that it really isn't a steering wheel in the sense that you're used to a steering wheel. It's more or less like a little extension of your mind. <laughs> they, they, they hold out of these things. Did you notice that, that one driver, for example, uh, who is driving in this coming race, uh, has all the fingers off of his left hand? Did you see that guy? He has no fingers on his left hand. He lost all the fingers. I think he's only got perhaps a part of the thumb. But he has no fingers on the left hand. Well, you figure, how can this guy hold the steering wheel, say? And they've really got to hold that steering wheel. This is not, you don't drive with one hand hanging out. You know, that one of the great funny bits that they always laugh about are these old racing movies that Jimmy Cagney always used to make. You remember with, uh, with uh, Frank Hale sitting next to him? Alan Hale or Frank McHugh, the, the, the trusty mechanic. And their car is burning. They're coming into the last lap, and he's winning the race for... for uh, Good old, uh, it's usually somebody like Lewis Stone and his daughter was Priscilla Lane. And uh, the last, that's, oh my God, you know, he's, and he's usually an old time race driver making a comeback. And they gave him this car and he's coming in and the car's on fire and Frank McHugh is pumping it. <laughs> and uh, they always laugh because there's always these scenes, long scenes where, where uh, it seems that Jimmy Cagney spends most of his time looking at the grandstand to see whether, uh, Priscilla Lane is appreciating it, or he keeps looking back all the time to see what the other cars are doing. Well, uh, it isn't quite like that. You know, they have a big rearview mirror on the side for that purpose, and you don't spend much time looking the other way when you're going 175 miles an hour on that brick oval. But uh, nevertheless, uh, this guy with the hand, with uh, his fingers are up, he designed a special kind of glove that fits over the left hand that has a socket in it. And that socket is then attached to a little ball socket on one spoke of his wheel. And he just attaches it down like a snap and, you know, like a, a little snap socket on a, on a convertible or something. He just snaps it down, and that way he can, he can operate this car. Uh, that's how maniacal these guys get about this field. I remember one little incident. I'm going to tell you a little thing. I don't think, uh, I don't think I've ever told this story. But one day, uh, among other race drivers that I have known in the past and, and uh, had doings with, was Sam Hanks, one of the great race drivers of all time. You've heard of Sam Hanks, haven't you? Great race driver. This is a true professional. Now, there are some guys that, that come up for a year or two, and they're, they're really nothing better than really talented amateurs. You know, they, they, they win a couple of races, and they got the pizzazz of being 19 years old. and They, uh, they come up, and uh, they play second in Indianapolis, and they do a great job for a couple of years, and then they gradually disappear. But Hanks was a professional in the same way. He just retired a year or two ago. In the same way that Ernie Banks is a professional ball player, you don't read much about Banks, you know. But but uh, take a look at the record book, you know. Year in and year out, he is there and uh, doing a fabulous thing. And this is the way with Sam Hanks. And Hanks looked a little like, and still does, I'm sure. He looked a little like uh, Gary Cooper. He had that that, that laconic, uh, slit-eyed, uh, crinkly face, the bronzed look. Just exactly the way you think a race driver should look. Now, the other guys didn't look that way. For example, Troy Ruttman, whom I also knew, did not look like a race driver. Uh, he beefy, big, sort of beefy, clunky guy, and you know, all uh, crew cut and uh, sort of a. But boy, what a fanatical race driver! When he first came up, he was a nut, wild nut. Uh, one of the biggest race drivers physically. Uh, but Sam Hanks was not very big. He was about probably five feet ten, very thin faced. 
very quiet, extremely dignified. Uh, just exactly the opposite of what you would think, uh, you know, the nut, the speed, and all the whole scene. Very quiet. Well, one day, I'm, I'm at a racetrack in uh, Dayton, and uh, I was there, and I was there with Sam Hank. An odd little thing happened. That uh, uh, This was before the race, and it was uh, they were racing Indy cars. It was a big car race, and uh, I was out down in the pit. And in, in Sam Hanks's pit that day, and, and Hanks was out running the car. He was out, he, they were doing something with a carburation, and he took this baby around about three times around the track. And the fourth time, uh, he gave him the nod, and they gave him the nod, and they, okay, then open her up, let's see, you know, let's get her going here, because they were going to race in about two hours, and he just, they're turning this thing on. Well, she, she dug in, this was a Curtis Craft, this car, offy, with an Offenhauser engine in it. And you didn't know I knew all about this, did you, Mary? So uh, he, he booted this baby, and I'm standing, and there was nobody there yet. The, 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 the stands were just sort of filling up, and he kicked the thing, and she, wow, a boy, and she took off. And Sam went into that first turn, and he screamed around. He opened her up on the back, so no timing him, you see. And he come whistling down that back stretch, and then he came into the far turn, and he beautiful, controlled. Oh, this guy was, a, was as smooth as uh, you-know-what. I almost said it. it. has to do with cats. He was smooth, I'll tell you. Uh, no sweat on Sam Hanks. He just drove like, you know, he drove like most people sleep, naturally. No, no problem to it. And he came whistling into that home stretch, and he screamed past us. He must have been going. Uh, and that was a smaller track, so he can get, couldn't get up the top speeds that he could at Indy. But he was, he was probably going about, oh, maybe 160, 155. And uh, which is not uh, not not the uh, top speed for these guys. It's just uh, cool. And so he he uh, goes in again. He comes into the into the first turn, and you can see he's slowing it down. It's going boom, boom, boom. Oh, I love the sound of these babies when they when they uh, when they uh, just let up on the on the accelerator. And and this offy is unwinding. You see, and you can hear him coming into the back stretch, and he's going boom, 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 boom. And he shifts. You know, he comes down into the fire turn. Boom, boom, and these engines there, particular this particular kind of Offenhauser engine, has a rough, raw sound. Uh, the Offy, up to the time of the the uh, rear engine cars of a few years ago, which was the big revolution that occurred, the Offenhauser engine was the racing engine, no doubt about it. A uh, magnificent piece of equipment built by the by Offenhauser, an ex racer himself out on the West Coast, and boy, you try to buy an Offenhauser engine, you understand what that thing runs. So, especially if it's the Indy size. So, he comes he comes into this, uh, coming into the pits, and you can hear it going, blah, 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 blah. You can smell that that, that hot oil and the, this, the, the, the heat coming out of it and the rubber and everything, and he just, bum, 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 bum. And he comes down, and it right, right slides into the pit, bum, 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 bum. And, and she slows up, and she sat, just slowed up, just pulled up to us, and the wheels are barely turning. Where do you hear the end of the story? The wheels are barely turning. Sam is sitting in the car, and she just pulls right up in front of us and just stops. And just as she stopped, the left rear wheel just went bunk and fell off. <laughs> And Sam, he looked back, he looked back at that thing, and, and he looked around at the pit crew, 
they're all standing there, you know, with their with their with their big oil cans and stuff out. You know, they had their hoses and everything. They stood there. Well, guys, it fell off. <laughs> Says you bet it did, Father. It fell off, and, and Sam slowly eased himself out of the out of the. Uh, out of the cockpit, you know, they got the belts, and he, he slowly slid out of the cockpit, and I could smell that car, and I could feel the heat. And he walked past the, past the bench, and already three guys are around there to find out what the heck happened, you know, why this why this wheel came off. And Sam uh, sat down, and he opened up a Coke or something, and he starts to drink the Coke, and I said, wow-wee. He says, well, that's what this game's about. <laughs> And he just, you know, that was out of it. He never talked anymore. To, and sure enough, a half an hour later, uh, he's out there with the car. And one hour later, boom, and off he goes in the number two position, just off the pole. He finished the race, by the way, third that day, which wasn't too bad, considering that uh, the car that he was running was uh, kind of an elderly car and had been around. But uh, this uh, this scene, uh, racing, that whole thing. Oh, you want to hear the one, one moment? I'll tell you, I'm... I'm uh, the one moment that that I I remember about that superstition about the green car, well all the all the drivers one morning, and this was before one of the races that I was about to be involved in myself. They were all talking about this one guy, uh, you know it was kind of funny. They were all kind of laughing about it. Says, ah, you know, he's, yeah, he's a smart guy, huh? And sure enough, there's that Kelly green car sitting down there, and the guy had a Kelly green car, and the, everybody was laughing about it for about three days. They'd been laughing about this guy with a Kelly green car. And uh, I think he even tried to get number 13 on it, you know, with skull and crossbones and the whole bit, you know. So sure enough, he's in the third row, and everybody rushed out to the car. The cannon goes off, and out they go. And the first pace, the pace lap just goes right around. And that year, I remember it was a Lincoln Continental. And they take, they go around the track, you know, the big wide turn, and the pace car is leading them like mad, and the smoke is rising. They come into the far turn, and then they come right into the home stretch. And I'm sitting there. I'm, I'm down in my little place there, and I see this green car go by me. And he hasn't even got this baby started yet. You know, it's not even hot. And all the cars are going, whoa, 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 whoa. They're going by, whoa, whoa. And all of a sudden, I hear, it was the green car. <laughs> he goes past me about 12 miles an hour, and he just got this funny look on his face. I don't think he completed the first symbolic lap. And he just drove off into the infield, $57,000 worth of car, six months worth of work, 18 million man hours of sweat and dreams, parked there amid the boondocks, and nobody even looked at it for the rest of the day, that Kelly Green automobile. That was the last Kelly Green car there, I'm sure, for several years, friends. Uh, by the way, are you driving a green car? Friend? I'm asking you out there. Are you driving a... Uh-oh. Uh-oh. I don't like to tell you, but Sam Hanks told me something about green cars, friend. He also told me, be careful. And you want to hear about this? He also said, be careful if they paint your number on the side of your car in yellow letters. That's bad scene, too. Right? And that he also said, be careful about wearing a blue helmet. And he says, don't change your socks for three days before the race. All right, friend, uh, don't forget now, tomorrow night, limelight, breathe deep, keep your knees loose, think clean thoughts. <laughs> and that, remember what the five and a half million people are going to be doing this Sunday.
Oh, yeah. Reading the Daily News. Oh, wow. All right, friends. Limelight tomorrow. Hang in. <laughs>